Well, hi, friends, and welcome to New Life Presbyterian Church in Dresher, Pennsylvania. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at New Life. I want to welcome all of you, however you're watching today. We exist to know Jesus and to make Him known, and that is our prayer. And my prayer uh, is that that is what you experience uh, through all of this here this morning. Let me uh, just make you aware that uh, coming up this next week as we head into Easter week, Friday night, we're still going to be having uh, our Good Friday service uh, virtually. So tune in at 7 o'clock, I believe. Uh, check your email inboxes for that. Uh, but we'll be uh, beaming that out via our various platforms. Friday night, that'll be a lament service. Uh, and then Sunday morning will be Easter Sunday at 10 a.m. And so let me just uh, invite you to invite your friends uh, to that time as we uh, look to the hope of Jesus Christ. Christ in uh, these challenging days. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be bumping around in 19 and 20. And as we jump into it here uh, today, I want to tell you the tale of, of really two pairs of shoes, uh, right? So uh, growing up when I was a teenager, I had a side job where uh, I cut people's grass uh, for a little extra cash over the course of the summer. And, and I would always wear uh, these ugly Nikes, right? Or at least they were ugly by the time I started using them. They were generic. I didn't really care about them. I'd beat them up. Uh, they were practically green uh, at that time, and, and they didn't really have a whole lot of value. Hence, they were lawn care shoes. Uh, but then I had my other pair of shoes. Uh, I remember one summer in particular, uh, my grandmother, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up, and so uh, my grandma would, um, she would bless me, right, with uh, taking me out and buying a more expensive pair of shoes uh, about once a Year. And I remember the one year I went out and bought my really prized possession of shoes, and they were Air Jordans, right? Uh, I don't know if you remember Air Jordans. The Jump Man is still around, right? It's that uh, image of Michael Jordan going up to dunk. It looks far cooler than whatever it was I just did on whatever screen you are watching. But, but essentially, uh, went out and spent like $50 more for this pair of shoes. And, and uh, they were far more valuable to me, by the way, than just 50 extra dollars. I, I would only wear them on special occasions. I wore them to play basketball, of course, because they made me play better. I'm convinced. Not at all. And, uh, and I would keep them clean. And, and make sure they were just pristine. But I valued them so much. Why? Was it because uh, they were made of such better materials? Because they were better engineered? No, no, not at all. It, it was that image, right? It was the image of Michael Jordan that was on it. He was my hero. He was everything I had aspired to be uh, at that point in my life. And because his image was on it, it made it worth 50 extra bucks. It made it worth me taking care of it and protecting it to make sure that it did not lose any value whatsoever. Well, let me read you a verse from Genesis chapter 1. It says this in 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, here's what God's word says. It says, every human has value because we have been made in and stamped with the image of the most incredible, glorious, valuable being in the universe. And that's God. My reading partner over the course of this season of being stuck indoors with COVID-19 is C.S. Lewis. I've gone back to reread him because he wrote a lot of what he wrote during times like World War II. And so he says this about uh, humankind being image bearers of God. He says this in his book, The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is that of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Friends, as we talk about the image of God, today we're talking about the phrase, you shall not murder, as it's said in the Ten Commandments. And, and, and here's what I would say, is if the image of God is valuable to Him, then the loss of that image is also equally significant. This is before us all the time, right? There's a ticker at Johns Hopkins University that tells us how many lives were lost today because of COVID-19. Generations are fighting with each other saying, hey, you acting this way is killing me and my generation. There are people who are accusing politicians of, of killing one another because uh, they didn't plan appropriately, right? We are locking ourselves in the house to mitigate the destruction of the image of God. The image of God is significant and its loss is horrific. It's not the way that it should be. And so today, as we look at our text, we're going to see this idea that every human being has value because we have been made in God's image. And God wishes to protect it as God's people head into the promised land. Let me read you just one more verse, Genesis 9, 6. We see God leaning into the atrocity of murder as it pertains to his image. He says this, uh, he says, whoever, and he's saying this to Mo, uh, Noah, by the way, after the flood. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so today, as we look at chapters 19 and 21, we're really unpacking uh, Deuteronomy 5.17, a few chapters earlier, where it says, You shall not murder. And so let me pray for us as we get going here uh, today. Lord, will you be with us as we spend some time in your word? Will you bring the hope of the gospel? Will you convince us? Lord, maybe we're struggling with value ourselves as we're made in your image. I pray that you will draw our eyes up to see our infinite worth in your eyes because we bear your image. And Lord, where we are short-sighted on the value of another human being, God, will you grip us and change our hearts? And Lord, will you meet that quickly uh, with the soothing balm of your gospel? So Holy Spirit, use your word, use me uh, as we go forward this morning and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, uh, there's really two points to the outline today. One <coughs> is protecting the vulnerable. Uh, and then, <coughs> excuse me, actually there's three points. Uh, the second is unnecessary loss of life. And the third is the uh, ultimate injustice. Uh, but, but let's start with that first main point. Not murdering, first off, as we jump in, is protecting the vulnerable. And there's really three quick bullet points to get to. Um, but before we do, let me read to you again from the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, that really unpacks this little teeny, uh, just a few word command. But uh, it really goes deeper and really God is going deeper today in these chapters. But here's what the Larger Catechism, question 135, says, at least in part. I'm not quoting the whole thing. But it says, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? And the answer is, it's all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which, tends, uh, which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any. All right, let me summarize that and what it's saying. It's really putting this command in the positive, and it's saying, you know, not 
killing or not murdering, put positively, is to study and work towards ways to preserve our lives and the lives of other people. And so let's look at our text today to see uh, what he's specifically saying to God's people before they go into the promised land, before they establish this new civilization, if you will, in Canaan. The first thing we see in 1 to 11 is we see him saying, I want to protect my image, uh, those who make devastating mistakes. Pick up with me in chapter 19, verse 2. I am in the book of Exodus. There we go. Chapter 19, verse 2. It says, When you get there, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Then skip down with me to verse 4. It says, This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when, and here's the example, someone goes into the forest and his neighbor with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and his hand slips or the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally. So the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his brother in the past. Now let me uh, unpack a little bit about what he's saying there. First of all, he's saying, hey, when you get uh, to uh, the promised land and get established, I want you to set up three cities in that land that are accessible to the whole uh, area of Israel, right? And he's saying this because he's saying there's going to be times in a broken and imperfect world where somebody accidentally kills somebody else, right? Today we would call it involuntary manslaughter. And he gives this example. Hey, you're going into the woods and you got your axe and you're chopping wood and you swing it back and the head falls off and it hits your buddy in the head and it kills him. He's saying the reason these cities exist is because even my people are going to get mad and have broken, sinful, rebellious responses to the taking away of the life of a loved one. And they're probably going to hunt that dude down who accidentally killed their family member. And if there's not a city close enough for them to run into for protection and against unjust murder, they are really vulnerable and they're probably going to die. God is getting really practical here and saying, create a place of asylum for people who are vulnerable, even if that vulnerability comes from them making devastating mistakes. Now, there is a warning after that saying, hey, and by the way, people are going to try to abuse this. Verses 9, 11 through 13. He says, if you see that, go in, grab them, and pull them out. That's not what those cities are for. Here's the second thing. Uh, he says, protect the vulnerable, uh, those who are easily taken advantage of. Verse 14. It says, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now you may say, what does that have to do with moving someone's boundary marker? That's what that's basically saying. What does that have to do with protecting the vulnerable? I'm glad you asked. Essentially, back then in this agricultural society, uh, one's land is their inheritance. That's what they pass down. It's not trust funds. It's not huge bank accounts. Uh, it's not corporations, right? In a way, it's their corporations, but, but it's built around their land. Right? That which they're farming, that produces for them. 
And later on in the history of Israel, and of course they couldn't foresee this here, but God could, he would see that his people wrongfully take advantage of one another where the powerful and the rich uh, uh, enable or create environments where uh, those with less means or less power or less resources become poor and dependent and they will abuse that power. They will take their land away from them. Later on in the prophets, that's one of the reasons why God sends judgment on His people. But He's saying, protect those who could easily be taken advantage of. Finally, He says, protect those who could be accused falsely. 19.15 It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Later on in 18 it says, The judges shall inquire diligently. And so another way to prevent murder or to protect the image of God is to protect against false accusations. He's saying one witness will never suffice, right? You need at least two or three. Every single one of us knows. If we're uh, in a family situation, you have little brothers, little sisters, whatever that may be, you know, it's really easy to find one witness against another person, isn't it? But he's saying, that should never suffice for my people. In fact, in verse 18, he said, the judges shall look into it diligently. Now, this was significant because some of the accusations could yield capital punishment, right? The loss of life. But I would also argue, and, and I think he would say the same thing, the Lord would as you look through the rest of the Pentateuch, is he saying any false witness is abhorrent to God. In fact, here it says that those people will actually receive capital punishment if they bear false witness. Why? Because when we falsely accuse people, we take away some aspect of their lives and we devalue that one image bearer of God. Let me give you some principles for application to this. Let's ask this question. Who are the vulnerable among us? Who are the vulnerable among us today? And let me just say this. In this age of social distancing and, and canceling everything, I, I would just argue that uh, this was actually an upholding of this commandment, right? Because we were protecting the elderly and those who are compromised. Let me also say this. I don't understand all the dynamics of this, of what it does to the economy long term. So I, I'm not becoming an expert in something that I'm not, right? But I'm just saying to this point, I foresee this as being glorifying to God because it upholds this commandment. We also need to ask the broad brush question of, of those who, apart from this um, uh, crisis that we're in, who the vulnerable are who are usually in our midst. And I would say this. People like immigrants, Right? Through Grow, right? We're taking the resurrection offering today. Uh, grow Northeast, that's who we look to um, serve and, and to protect, right? I would also say, what about the voiceless unborn? They're some of the most vulnerable. What about the unborn's moms who suffer uh, injustice and vulnerability and who are frightened out of their minds? What about those in foster care, especially in this season of COVID-19? What about those who are domestically abused emotionally and physically right now? Time Magazine had this article saying, Help, I am trapped inside with my abuser. That is a horrifying thought. What about the racially profiled or discriminated against? Now, friends, there are many ethical dilemmas and complexities with any one category that I just listed. 
But I would just say this. Ask ourselves the questions. How can we reflect God's care for His image who are remarkably vulnerable now and going forward? So the first application is ask that question. Here's the second one. Raise the bar on what we consider valuable as it pertains to image bearers of God. There is a danger in being selective of overvaluing one life over the other. I would say in our culture, we overvalue ourselves in an individualistic society. We need to challenge that. Some people have been frustrated in the past as I clump certain uh, people groups in with one another that might cross the aisle as it pertains to uh, protecting the image of God. And I would say this, uh, I am not trying to diminish any one life. In fact, I am looking at all the vulnerable image bearers of God and trying to raise them up to the same level and saying, the task is huge to protect life and to protect the vulnerable. We may be overwhelmed as I say this. Some of us may say, well, there's so much life to protect, and how can I even do that sitting in my house right now? I don't have an easy answer to that question other than to lean into God's providence right now. Who is He laying on your heart? What opportunities is He giving you to protect the lives of the vulnerable around you right now? Ask the Lord to open doors of opportunities for you. And then let me ask one question. Are we evaluating our perception of the value of all human life? Right? Are we raising that bar in our own hearts? Here's the second point. Not murdering is also avoiding the unnecessary loss of life. Let me read to you from Westminster again, question 136. What are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? And the answer is, the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in in case of public justice, lawful war, or or, or of necessary defense. It's also the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Now, that's a lot, but it's basically saying, hey, um, part of, or what's forbidden, is uh, the unnecessary, unnecessary taking of the life of another image bearer of God. So, what's ironic about this is if you look at chapter 20, all it's talking about is war, right? And uh, there was one family that came up to me after a sermon, and they said, hey, my family was talking about the Bible around the table, and and their son said, hey, uh, the Bible says you shouldn't kill, so why is war right in the mix of it, right? And that's a great question, and even in chapter 20, verse 1, it starts off saying, when you go out to war against your enemies... Anthony, why, how on earth can God call us to not kill and then embed in that, in unpacking of it, the concept of war? Well, this is far more complex than I can unpack, but let me just take a stab at two things. One is this idea of just war, all right? Even in the New Testament, in places like Romans 13.4, where God says, I have providentially established governments, he says this, the governments or the magistrate is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so what God would advocate for is, in a broken, imperfect world where it's not the way it's supposed to be, There will be war. There will be things like um, punishment uh, uh, to detour others from doing things like murdering other people. 
And it is very much a compromise. It is very much not the way that it should be. But as we talk about war, here's a term that I just want to name to you. It's called just war, right? Now, this is a topic that theologians have been battling for years. St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th century, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th, they, uh, in a way, popularized this in their day. But just war theory essentially says this, that war, while terrible, but less so, with the right conduct, is not always the worst option. Important responsibilities, undesirable outcomes, or preventable atrocities may justify war. Now, again, there's a range of beliefs and stances on this, and so I, I want to be careful not to, um, you know, go too deep into it in an irresponsible way. But I would just say this. Just war works to prevent unnecessary loss of life, right? And this is something totally different than conquering people to get more land. That, that is not falling in the realm of just war theory. It would be similar to uh, Winston Churchill's uh, speech there during World War II in the House of Commons on May 13th, 1940. Three days after he got to office, how would you love to get to office in the midst of that? But he says this to the House of Commons. He says, you ask what is our policy about war? He says, our policy is to wage war by land, sea, and air. War with all our might and all our strength that God has given us. And to wage war, and here's why, right? Against a monstrous tyranny ever surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. This is our policy. And he goes on to say, if we don't fight this war, uh, the, the, the consequences are dire. The loss of life would be so much more. Now, even after that, uh, the Geneva Conventions had to get together and say, hey, we need to identify what's illegal with regards to war crimes, right? And so uh, I'm not making any commentary about certain wars being more appropriate than others, but I am just saying there is an idea that God has compromised to say, hey, if you have to go to war for just reasons, there are rules that I want to put in place. The rest of chapter 20 is outlining some of those rules. Into 21, some of them may feel archaic uh, to us, and, and maybe there'll be a different day down the road where we can unpack that a little bit further. But what he's saying is, is there are normative rules I am putting in place to pre prevent the unnecessary loss of life. And even in verse 10 of chapter 20, he says, if you go to the city and they surrender, don't take a life. Now let me go to something that's a little harder, and it's this idea of God's war that we see here. Right? You know, if we look at verses 15 and 16, what he's saying here is these normative laws of war that I'm giving you. He's saying, This you shall do to all the cities that are far from you, so outside of the promised land, which are not of the cities and nations here. But then in 16, he says, In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving for your inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Friends, that's hard. And it would be irresponsible for me to just gloss over this and pretend that it's not here. I know people that this is a major sticking point for them, even in uh, believing in the God of the Bible, right? And so in this brief three minutes that I'm going to speak to this, let me just caveat it with this, is that I want to simply just give you some categories to think about, but I am not putting forth an excellent apologetic. And I'm not going to necessarily convince anybody by this, but I want to give you some categories of what we're talking about here as it pertains to this war God calls His people to here in the Old Testament in the Promised Land. If you want to wrestle this out more, I'm going to recommend one book uh, for now. I'll 
hold back on another one until I know more about it. But it's called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copen. I've read it. It's helpful. It gives categories. Uh, again, it's still a hard topic to wrestle through. But if you really have that as a sticking point, don't just say it and move on. Interact with how other Christians have thought about this through the ages. Here's some categories. One, the questions are legitimate. That is a legitimate question of saying, you know, is God a moral monster? Is this okay for Him to command His people to do? And I would say this, Christians rightly should condemn this kind of behavior in any other circumstance outside of this unique one here. Now here's the second category I would give you, is that this war in particular is very unique, in part because of who God is calling to go to war. It was this theocracy of Israel that was very unique, even to modern-day Israel, where God was literally with them in the tabernacle, later in the temple, dwelling with them, and He would nominate mouthpieces like Moses to speak for Him and to lead Him. That's why at the beginning of Exodus you see Moses being unpacked so deeply about how he is a prophet of God. And so they are very unique as a nation to anybody else who has existed since that nation state of Israel under the God of the universe. And so I would say anything like the Crusades or anybody today who would say, I am the voice of God, I am leading into war, I would say that is condemnable and wrong. That is not just war. I would also say this, is if we just read this baldly on its face, we forget the long history that's unpacked in the rest of the Pentateuch. Even in Genesis 15, verse 16, uh, as, as God is giving a covenant to Abraham, He says, hey, and these people who I'm going to make uh, your offspring, they're going to come back here to this promised land later in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquities of the Amorites. The Amorites were some of the people in the Promised Land. And if you do some reading in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 9, they were a horrific people. They sacrificed their kids to these gods. They had temple prostitutes. And God is saying, I can't just turn a blind eye. I am going to bring you back here to bring my justice upon them. As hard as that is to hear, that is largely what's in view here. And here's the other thing that we need to wrestle with is that this war, because of what I just shared with you, is framed as God's justice. It's His judgment. And God, if He is the creator of all things, and if He is ultimately just, the source of all morality, that all morality flows through, then He also possesses the right to judge His creation as He sees fit. It's not easy. It's not necessarily convincing. But that's what the Bible holds out to us, as Him being the creator, just God. Now here's one other thing I want you to see is the character of God even in the midst of this in Ezekiel 33. And by the way, uh, this, the Canaanites are not the first people who God brought His judgment on. He later brings the same type of judgment on His people through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians, right? So this isn't just a, a unique uh, time. God uh, has acted in His justice before and He will again when Jesus one day returns. But here's what he says to his people in Ezekiel 33. He says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn back and turn from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Even among the Canaanites, when God's people go in to Jericho, there is a Canaanite woman, Rahab, the prostitute, who turns from, uh, from, from her ways to God. And they're saved. And so there are opportunities that were offered over the course of generations. 
But let me look at this final piece at the ultimate injustice. Because for us as human beings, you know what it's really easy to do? It's really easy to keep the camera looking that way and be like, you're a murderer and you're terrible. God, you're this. Person, you're this. Politician, you're this. Generation, you're this. And we fail to look at our own heart and how we devalue the very image of God ourselves. But Anthony, I've never killed anybody. But listen to how Jesus unpacks this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, have you ever been angry? Have you ever called someone a fool in your heart, outwardly, on social media? Have you ever, to go back to the previous categories, sought revenge in hot anger? Have you ever uh, shared a false accusation about somebody? Have you ever taken advantage of another person? Have you ever waged an unjust war against a person, group of person, or even a family member? And what God's Word is saying here is that you and I, because I certainly have, are guilty of murder. But Anthony, I've never killed anybody. But yes, murder here, as we've seen it defined, is taking of life and devaluing of his image. It's taking my Jordan shoes and going to the jump man and just ripping it apart and saying, nah, what would I have done in that moment? I would have probably gotten angry and been guilty of murder, right? Scriptures tell us over and over again, we are far worse off than we ever thought. Friends, one of the primary functions of the law as we read it is to show us our own brokenness, rebelliousness, and desperate need of a Savior and to push us to the only one who can fix our situation. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23-25, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you know what propitiation means? It's He bore the full penalty that we deserved to bear. He took on God's full justice on our behalf on the cross by His blood so that we may be made to be just in the eyes of of God. What if we killed somebody? What if we killed somebody and then we got arrested? And then they're taking us into the courtroom and in handcuffs we're walking in going, ah, but my dad is the judge and he loves me. I'm going to get off easy. But as you approach the bench, you realize my dad is also the best judge around because he's just. And even though he loves me, he can't betray his justice. What's going to happen to me? Well, his father, after hearing it, bangs the gavel and he says, you're guilty. But then imagine if his father stood up from the bench and he took off his robe and he said, but I'm taking your place. And he goes into the next room and he pays that penalty of capital punishment on behalf of his child. That's exactly what is happening this week as we head into Easter. Palm Sunday. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is here. 
That's the beginning of the righteous judge, Jesus, who will one day judge the sins of the world, getting off the bench and walking to the cross to pay that penalty for every single one of us. The greatest injustice of all time is getting ready to happen. The perfect God is going to be killed, murdered. The very people who are saying Hosanna are getting ready to nail him to the cross. Friends, Jesus this morning is offering us murderers, the ones who devalue his very image, justice taken out on his son so that we may have life eternally with him. And he's saying all you have to do is confess this to be true, that you are a broken rebel murderer in his eyes, but that we can simply receive by faith this gift of grace just by praying right now, Jesus, I believe I am this rebel, but I believe that offer of grace is there for me, that you got off the bench for my behalf to spend eternity with you, penalty paid in full. That's the offer for you today. Let me encourage you to pray that and to ask that dependence upon the Lord for his payment of that penalty and to turn to him in faith. In closing, every human being has value because we are made in his image. And it is seen ever more clearly where justice and love come together as Jesus is murdered for our sake on the cross. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, will you be with us as we um, go about our Sunday, go about our day, Lord, I pray that as we head towards Easter, you will help us to see where love and justice come together perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ and prepare us for the hope of the resurrection. We pray these things in your name. Amen.